You're listening to Canada's Court, your home for all your Canadian basketball needs. Here's your host, Philip Drost. In basketball and in life, to get an open look, you need the strategy of a coach and the assist or help from a teammate. That's how Coach Dre Triano starts his book, Open Look. In it, he tells his story, his passion for Canadian basketball, becoming friends with Terry Fox, getting knocked out by Michael Jordan, and so much more. It is a must-read for anyone who considers himself a Canadian basketball fan. And it is my honor to have Coach Triano on the podcast today to talk all about it. Coach Triano has played for the Team Canada and coached it. And he's also the first Canadian to be head coach of an NBA team. He's currently the assistant coach of the Charlotte Hornets. Coach Triano, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Let's start with, uh, I think, is uh, an important moment in the book. The, when you first decided it was your goal to be a player on Team Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, it was interesting because uh, they were getting ready for the 1976 Olympic Games, which are going to be held in Montreal. And uh, the national team was playing a game that I almost didn't go to. It was an exhibition game. It was at Niagara University, but... Uh, I think I got my homework done fast enough. And my dad took me over to what we watched the game. And it was, uh, it was a, not only a great game, but it was a, a game uh, that went, you know, back and forth. And then at the end of the game, they played the national anthem. And I thought, how patriotic is that? This is really cool. I've never seen that. It's always, it was always just done, you know, at, at, at big events. And this was a big event. And I remember watching the players, after they had won the game, standing there so proudly. And I just said, this is something I want to do. And uh, I don't know whether it was the love of the sport or, or, or me being so patriotic that that would, that's what kind of fueled the fire for me to, to you know, create this dream. And then uh, the journey began to get there. And you have a few very interesting little, just little tidbits in, in, in the book, uh, just that you briefly mentioned and then you move on. But uh, you used to play tournaments against yourself in the driveway. How does that work? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, you know, at, at that time, you know, you could play pickup hockey somewhere, but you couldn't find, I couldn't find two other people or three other people that wanted to play two-on-two basketball. Basketball just wasn't a thing. It was, a, you know, there were basketball hoops and driveways, but it was a kind of a solo thing you did. And uh, it was kind of my release. If I, you know, I wanted to go out and there was, there was something about the game at a young age when, you know, just the success, you see the ball go through, it's like a win. And uh, you just try to do it as many times as you could and in many different ways. So, yeah, I created uh, uh, games where I would uh, compete left hand against right hand or I would, for five minutes I'd be this one guy and see how many shots I could make and then I would pretend I would be somebody else from the NBA and see how many shots I could make and create all these little tournaments. But I uh, always tried to be, you know, I had this little creative uh, competitiveness in me uh, and it kind of kept me going and kept me out in the driveway shooting and playing games all the time. And then uh, you thought that the the best way for you to make the national team was to go to Simon Fraser University, and there you met a a, a very well-known Canadian, not just to uh, basketball fans or sports fans, but uh, pretty much everyone. Let's talk about Terry Fox and and, and how you first met him. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, When I went to Simon Fraser, I went there because... You know, they had three players that were had been part of the Canadian national team program for a while. So the, those guys were like the guys. I went there. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be who you are. And then, you know, within the first week that I'm there, uh, you know, I met Terry Fox, who had uh, played on the junior varsity team the year before, 
had fallen down, hurt his knee, and they realized that it wasn't a basketball injury, that it was cancer. And, uh, you know, had had his leg removed. And, you know, I was like in an awkward situation meeting him for the first time. You didn't know who this guy is, but he was part of the team. He was the same age as I was. And I was just like, okay. And then you get to know him a little bit, and he started telling us every day about the dream that he had, that he was going to run across Canada. And, uh, you know, we were always like, okay, yeah, supportive, okay, sure. And then to watch him slowly turn it into a reality, um, you know, with his training methods and wheeling his wheelchair up the Burnaby Mountain to go to, to, to lift weights so that he could get stronger to do this. And it was just – it was an inspiration to me. Here I was taking the bus up because I wanted to play in the Olympic Games, and this guy here was going to run across Canada because of the uh, sadness and the, and, the, and the suffering that he had seen in the cancer wards uh, during his time uh, in, in the hospitals. And I just thought, this guy's got, you know, and then, uh, and then to follow him throughout his, and watch him go from nobody following his run to by the time he hit Toronto, everybody falling in love with this Canadian. So, I, I don't know, it's just to me it was just a, uh, you know, I, I think he's inspired many Canadians, but he inspired me before he even started the run. And uh, to be able to follow it with him and be a friend of his is kind of, uh, uh, you know, I feel I feel very lucky and very fortunate. And uh, obviously, it's a big it's a big part of this book. Uh, I understand that he uh, stopped in Niagara Falls just because uh, that's where you were. Yeah, yeah, uh, we. Uh, when he was on his uh, marathon of hope, he stopped and he did not run for one day. And that was a day that he took uh, out of his schedule to drive down to Niagara Falls and to visit City Hall there. And I met him at City Hall. And uh, I, again, at this point, it was still pretty young in, in the uh, in the run, and he and he hadn't hadn't been, you know, it hadn't been as public as it was. So there were there were probably a hundred people, and it wasn't even a, like a big big turnout. But I was there, and um, he, he came down to Niagara Falls because because of uh, our our relationship and our friendship. How did knowing him, and uh, I, this is going to be a, a big question, but how did knowing him and, and being part of that impact your life going forward? Well, I just think, you know, I, you, you learn. I mean, I've been, like, I, I, I've said so many times, like, a, a guy like Terry Fox and a, and a guy like Steve Nash and even Jack Donahue, who coached me on the national team for years, are, you know, I think three of – to me, of some of the greatest Canadians as far as uh, what they did for our country in different ways. And, um, you know, to, I think with Terry, it was just like anything's possible. And, you know, he would always say the same lines that I had heard from my national team coach. Uh, you know, dreams can be made if people try. Um, you know, and it just taught you how to dream. And, and, and that it was an example of somebody who was going to, chase a dream no matter what obstacles no no excuses I, i'm going to chase this dream and um i think that's what it taught me it's okay to have these crazy dreams to to dream things that a lot of people would think are unrealistic uh but to to you know you put it to paper and you write it down and you put it where you can see it and then you you spend day after day you know working towards trying to make it that dream become a reality and i think that's what i learned most from Terry is just that the unrelentless uh, drive to achieve something uh, that a lot of people would think is maybe uh, not smart, not realistic, or not attainable. But uh, sure enough, you know, I think I think his goal initially was to get one dollar from every Canadian, and if he did that, he would raise at the time I think twenty-two million dollars. Well, 
he certainly surpassed that goal and uh, you know became the hero that he is because of it. Now, you mentioned Jack Donahue as well. He was the coach of the men's national team at the time, but you had a, a bit of a challenge for your first national team tryout. I did. Yeah, I, I was horrible. <laughs> you know, here I was training for for two years or three years after watching them play, and I finally got an invite, and I think I, I sprained my ankle the night before or the or, or, or day before, and uh, I knew I didn't have the capability of having a trainer or anything, so the the trainer at Brock University taped me up, and I left the tape on overnight so that I could drive to Toronto the next day and, and play, and I was just awful, but... Uh, you know, I, I you know I, I think I left a mark because I, I you know I had this fiery attitude and I wasn't going to quit and I wasn't going to not go because I had a sprained ankle, which I think a lot of people would have done. And I went and uh, it turned out to be a, turned out to be a positive. I didn't I obviously didn't make the team the first time because <laughs> I was so bad, uh, but uh, you know it, it, it registered with somebody that you know here here's a guy that's that's hurt but didn't show that he was hurt. Here's a guy who still came on tried out and still played really hard, but just wasn't very good. And it, it got me an invite to another camp. And that time, the next time I went, I was healthy. So, uh, you know, it's just, again, kind of that relentless pursuit of, of a dream. And that early experience of uh, uh, trying out for the team and not being at your best, but still putting in all that work, that, that made some impacts on when you were making the team later on when you were the coach of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the one of the things I learned from Jack was that, uh, you know, he never picked the 12 best players. And, and I think the one time that he did, and I remember playing on that team in 1982, he picked all the best players in Canada, and there was just no cohesion, no roles identified, and we, we just weren't very good. And uh, he said, I'll never make that mistake again. He said he went against his principles because he got caught up in talent. And, um you know his his understanding of of the game and the way he picked teams were that you you know you fit into roles and um, you know you needed you needed the guys that were the grinders you needed the guys that were okay with sitting and maybe not playing on a regular basis and that their attitude because you know he, we always said and, and it's still true to this day as I coach the national team it, it's no fun to take a group of twelve players overseas and be over there for a two or three week period of time and have somebody disgruntled because that just kind of infects the whole team. And, and they look for support, and they bring somebody else with them. And then all of a sudden now you're down. If they bring one person with them, you're down to ten guys. And they bring somebody else with them, you're down to nine. And then somebody gets hurt, now you've only got eight guys that are mentally locked in and ready to play. And I, I think that how you choose a team, I learned at an early age, that it wasn't always going to be the best players, but it was going to be the best uh, guys that were going to uh, help provide what, what a team is all about. Now, eventually, you did make the national team, uh, and your your reaction after finding out you made it was uh, pretty entertaining. Tell me about that. Well, I, I, I went and I, I I said I phoned everybody that I knew, and uh, then I started phoning people I didn't know because I was just <laughs> so excited. I had to tell everybody, and uh, it was it was uh, you know I remember. I, I obviously, I, I didn't have the greatest of camps at the beginning, uh, so I, I had been phoning home every night looking for support and, and didn't always get it. Um, but when I finally made it, that phone call home was one of the most memorable phone calls that I made. It, you know, is basically telling them I'm not coming home. I'm going to go to Argentina with this team. I actually made it, and um, 
I just remember how excited I was to be able to just put on that Canadian jersey and uh, uh, and, and go represent my country. And uh, you know, and I found out, like I said in the book, I found out soon enough that you know I wasn't going to play. I was one of those role players. I was one of those guys that sat well. I was one of those guys that kept great stats. Uh, sitting on the bench while the other ten players got to play, but uh, yeah, you know, still it was. Uh, I, I think I, I sent the first the first postcard I ever sent home was like seventeen hour flight to get here, the bed sagged, the food isn't any good. I'm the thirteenth man on a twelve man team, but I'm having the time of my life. So uh, it was just um, it's such an exciting thing to be able to represent Canada and, and to have that be a goal. And then uh, once I got you know in in love with doing that. I never wanted it to change, so I never stopped my work ethic, uh, and I wasn't ever going to let somebody take my position. I was just going to say uh, it was clear to see in your book that uh, international travel wasn't all that glamorous back then. <laughs> no, no, certainly wasn't. It was uh, it, there were some rough rough times, but I think that's what helped make us uh, bond together so well. We were all going through tough times, and I think that you know when you go through tough times, that's what helps identify who you are or who you can be as a person or as a player or even as a team. Now, one of the marquee moments in your uh, time as a, as a player on the national team was the miracle on hardwood. You were playing the USA and they had a bunch of uh, future, a couple future hall of famers to tell me a bit about that tournament and that game. Well, we were fortunate because the, the world university games that year were in, were in Edmonton and, you know, we just didn't, have a lot of opportunities to play and represent our country in our country. And uh, uh, we just happened to, I think, peak at the right time. We had been playing together for a long time. We we're all together trying to prepare for the 1984 Olympics. Uh, so a year prior to that, we had this tournament in Edmonton and Charles Barkley and Carl Malone and Ed Pinckney and Johnny Dawkins, all these guys from the U.S. came in, came rolling in, and we lost the preliminary game, which meant we had to play them in the semifinals. And I think maybe they looked past us a little bit, but we played a fantastic game and upset the United States uh, and, and got into the gold medal game. And uh, I think everybody know, you know knows who those players are, and they know the value of winning and beating the United States uh, in basketball and how big that was. But uh, I, I still say to this day, the game the next day in the gold medal match was just as uh, as important because uh, for basketball in our country because Yugoslavia at the time was still one nation and they were one of the top basketball nations in the world and that's who we played in the gold medal game and we didn't want to get caught up being too amped about beating the Americans and thinking that that you know we had done what we were supposed to do we still had the gold medal in mind and beating Yugoslavia in the gold medal game was to me. As, as big a highlight as beating the United States, but it just seems like it's more popular now to say, oh, yeah, we beat the U.S., but uh, to win the gold against Yugoslavia was a big thing for me as well. Absolutely. And uh, another thing that showed up again and again in your book was uh, you guys got into a lot of fights. It sounds like there was a lot of fights in uh, international basketball back then. You know, I think what it was was, you know, and I think it goes to Jack. I mean, he, he created a passion in all of the guys that played. And there was a toughness that we had. And maybe it's the, you know, the, the backing of a hockey country or whatever. But we would, uh, we would go into games, and we did not like to lose. We were all super competitive. Uh, we were playing against other people that were out there representing their country. And when you get two teams with that much passion, the penalties weren't as strong 
in back then as they as they are now with suspensions and everything, and they had to actually change those rules because there were fights on a regular basis. It was, uh, I think, anytime you have you know people representing their country with the passion that they are and the competitive spirit that we had, um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be times, and, there, and I'll be honest, there were times that we, you know, maybe it's the hockey background, we'd get down 15, 20 points, and we go, hey, we need to change momentum. Who's, who's going to do it? And, and we'd go out there and we'd, we'd almost pick a fight to see if we could change the momentum of a game if we got down early. So, um, you know, again, I think it's just, uh, you know, being Canadian and being passionate about who we were representing uh, was a big part of us. Yeah, you definitely uh, couldn't get away with that these days. <laughs> that, yeah. wouldn't, that wouldn't go over so well. Uh, t- tell me about your, your first Olympic experience. You finally were able to make it to the games you guys qualified and that dream came true what was that like it was it was uh it was phenomenal it was uh it was a, a better experience than i even had imagined i think you know when uh, when the world stops and 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 sports um and olympics are on you know it I, and maybe it's a little bit of my background and you know it was always something that as a family we would sit and watch the olympics and be inspired by you know, a Mark Spitz and, and the swimming medals that he had won and uh, watching everything on TV, Winter Olympics or whatever. But just getting there and then seeing and going for, you know, you, you, you try to stay locked in on what you're doing there and why you're there. And, and then you go for lunch and you're sitting across from some of the most famous people in the world, uh, you know, in different sports. The boxers were there, the gymnasts were there. And you're all in one big cafeteria. It was just kind of like a, I don't know, a two-week, I don't want to say vacation because you're all there for the same reason, but it was like a two-week um, get-together of all the greatest athletes in the world. And and, uh, and it was on in front of the world. So I don't know. It, just, it, it was a better experience than I had ever imagined. And I think the first time I got, you know, you get kind of caught up in being at the Olympics and trying to take advantage of everything that presented itself. But uh, to me, the, the, the second Olympics was was better uh, in, in the fact that we didn't place as high because we were we ended up sixth and not fourth like we did in '84. But uh, you know, you, you, your focus is a little bit better. You go there. You don't go there for opening ceremonies. You, you don't go there for the exchanging of pins. You don't go there to do all the things that you can get caught up in doing at an Olympic event. You go there locked in uh, at trying to be the best that you can be because that's what you've trained your whole life for. And then after after that, you you play twice at the Olympics, and then after that, you you start your transition into coaching. Uh, you spend some time doing some some uh, analysis for actually the Vancouver Grizzlies. You were you were all over the place doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, you you've basically been involved in pretty much any uh, Canadian basketball organization. <laughs> but uh, what was it like moving from uh, playing to coaching? Was that a tough transition for you? It was at the same time. I think near the end of my career, you, you know, you're always thinking the game. You're always um, analyzing the game as you as you grow through your career as a player. And uh, I knew that I wanted to stay in the game, so I knew that I was going to be a coach at some level, whether it was being a high school teacher and coaching a high school team, or um, if it meant coaching at a university, that would be great. But it wasn't even like a, a dream, like a long. It was just something that evolved. Okay, well, I can help out at, at Simon Fraser University, and I, I like that. It was it was me being an assistant there. And then, oh, the coach is going to retire, so do you want to take the head coaching job? Well, I tried that and I loved it. So uh, I think it's just something that I kind of grew into 
and learned along the way. Um, but it was it was great for me because I was still involved in the game. I just didn't, you know, ha- have the ability uh, to do it physically on a regular basis anymore. One of the things that uh, blew me away when you were at Simon Fraser, uh, you helped make one of the original NBA video games. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty impressive. Tell me about that. Yeah. yeah, it was. You know, that's one of my like. Obviously, I you know I coach for a reason. And it's to help people and uh, to help help players. And if I, like, I I still coach our national team to see if I can help somebody get to an Olympic Games. But um, you don't know when opportunities are going to come. And EA Sports was starting up in Vancouver, and they hired me to do um, some scouting reports on the different teams, so that if the game went into default mode, that it would uh, be realistic and the teams would be running their plays. So I did scouting reports for you know the NBA. Uh, and gave them to EA Sports, and then they were like, oh, this is great. And then they wanted some analysis of players and, you know, w- what their rankings would be as far as passing and shooting. So I took it along the trips with, at Simon Fraser with me, and uh, I got my team, who obviously all knew the game, and they would give me their uh, their insights on all these players, and I would write them all down and in turn send that back to EA Sports, and they they loved everything that I was doing for them, and I had built up a, a really good relationship with the people there, and then they asked if I wanted to, if I knew anybody that wanted summer jobs, and I, I think I had 12 players that said yes, they wanted to go and work <laughs> for a video game company back then, and when they found out their job was to play the video game over and over and over again and then write down what was good and what was bad and what was wrong, they just thought that was the best job that they could ever have. And, you know, the, to me, though, you know, I always try to teach my the, the kids that played for me, you know, how to approach things with a work ethic and with an attitude and be polite and respectful. And uh, the people that I got the summer jobs there now, you know, still work for EA some 20-something years later. And uh, they turned that summer job into a, a graduation and full-time employment, and they're still working there today. So, or, or, or a bunch of them anyway are. And it's just turned uh, out to be a, a great uh, a great thing for me to watch those guys uh, grow into have successful jobs and, and be able to do something that they love. I wonder how some of those uh, players you guys rated would feel to know that they uh, they were rated by a, 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 team, a, a, un, a Canadian <laughs> university team. Well, it's funny because when I was coaching the Raptors, and this, this, this part isn't in the book, but I was coaching the Alvin Williams, and I think I told him the story about how we uh, – how we helped rate the games and I helped build the game and stuff like that. And he looked at me and he goes, can you do me a favor? Can you make me at least be able to dunk the ball? I can <laughs> dunk it. And I said, sure. And so he had to show me that he could dunk it. And uh, so I called the people at EA and the next year, of course, we made sure that Alvin Williams could dunk the basketball. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun with it over the years as well. Even even moving into the NBA, I was able to you know meet a lot of the people that I was an hour giving analysis of and uh, obviously would have been a much better I would have had a much better idea of what was right and what was wrong after spending a couple of years in the NBA but uh, it was fun doing it initially and eventually so you, you you get into the coaching and then you do end up becoming the coach of the national team what did that mean for you when when you ended up taking that job oh well, I mean it's just it's the same thing that meant for me as a player really I mean uh uh, I'm passionate about the game and I'm passionate about our country. And uh, if I can combine the two and give players an opportunity to enjoy what I did about representing Canada and participating in an Olympic Games, uh, then that, that, that's, that's what it's all about. And obviously, 
you know, I'm, I'm super competitive still and want to do well and want the players to do well because this is a uh, something they'll remember for the rest of their lives. I remember how much it meant for me to have a guy like Jack Donahue um, trying to instill values and, and goals in me and, and what it meant. And if I could ever be that to one player, that would be, uh, you know, why I do this. Now, you said in your book when you were uh, preparing for the Sydney Olympics, and I'll quote it here, the only way for Canada to succeed was to have a team completely committed to the crest on the front of the jersey. How difficult is that today, these days, with athletes? You know, they have to balance their NBA deals, sponsorships. You know, some of them, they just played 82 games in the NBA season. Is that, has that become more difficult now? I, I'm hoping that it becomes easier now. Uh, because these guys, I think a lot of times people were like using the Olympics and using the national team to try to establish who they were going to be uh, as a pro and how they were going to use that to identify themselves or prove to somebody that I'm an NBA player or I should be an NBA player or should get, or be playing well enough to get a contract. Uh, and then it can become frustrating when you when you those are your goals and you don't get to play, or you don't play as well as you'd like to play. I think now, in our country, all of our players are established. Uh, by representing Canada now, it's a one. It, it's all about the win. It's not about who's gonna uh, who's gonna be the highest score and maybe get another contract. You're gonna earn that because we're all pros. And I think that it, I'm hoping that it becomes an easier thing for us now uh, to get together and understand that the common goal is to win. I mean, nobody's going to the Olympics. And there's not in a, in a room 12, full of 12 players and one player is going to bring home an award that uh, we're either all going to bring something home or we're all not going to bring something home. And that's, that's gotta be the goal. Um, so I think in the past it was guys still fighting for jobs or trying to prove to somebody that they were better than they are. And I think when we get together, uh, you know, now with so many pros, it'll be an easier thing for us to do focus on one thing and that's just trying to win a medal now uh, another little story you mentioned when you were uh, at the 2000 Sydney Olympics you guys qualified and uh, had a terrific uh, run there but when the team before games the team had a special version of the board game risk they would play uh, tell me a bit about that well that's when I knew there was something special about this team because uh, they stayed together, they hung out together, they didn't want to go to any other sporting events. They were there and they were completely locked into the basketball game. And I remember going into the village one night just to check on them in their house. And uh, the Olympic Village was set up a really neat way. You know, every team had their own little house. So these guys were all sitting in the living room downstairs and they were playing a board game called Risk. And I was like, oh, I know this game. And I was watching them and it was like, this isn't how you play. And I started like, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? And they, they looked up at me and they just said, coach, he says, we kill the country that we play tomorrow. And then we finish the game. And so <laughs> I just thought, okay, these guys are there. We've got, I've got them locked in. That's for sure. Uh, as they were all trying to beat up on a country uh, in a board game. But uh, you know, it was, it was a special group, that group that went to the Olympics. They, uh, they stayed together. They were, the envy of all the other athletes. And, you know, we did that on purpose. Um, we did that as an experience that I had had uh, being at the Olympics where sometimes you can be separated and guys can go their own way and have different interests. But uh, these guys were locked in. I told them it's the two weeks of your life that you'll look back on. And when you do, you want to have no regrets that you gave everything that you had. 
And that team certainly did that. You guys uh, had a, a terrific run there. Uh, but you did end up falling short of a medal. And it says in the book you had to physically, with some help, carry Steve Nash off the court. Uh, what was that like? And what was it like coaching Steve Nash? Well, coaching Steve was was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Uh, and he's just because of the type of person that he is. I mean, super competitive, wanted to win every drill, anything that he did. He brought a leadership and an ideal to uh, our our team about what our country is about, um, how he carried himself. And, you know, in that game, he obviously didn't have a great game, but, uh, you know, he left everything that he had on the floor. And I think he was just physically and emotionally drained that his dream of winning an Olympic medal uh, might be gone now. And uh, it was it was an extremely emotional time. I think I think when the Olympics are over, and you've spent four years, which is a short time, or maybe eight years, uh, or maybe a lifetime uh, chasing a goal, and to realize that uh, it's not going to happen now or that it's over, um, I think that makes it really, really tough for you to emotionally digest uh, what you're going through at that at that immediate time. And that was a very tough time for me to have to address our team as a whole and Steve and Steve in particular. And uh, another tough time for you. This was kind of the. Uh the tough time special here in the book, but um, after failing to make the 2004 Olympics, you kind of, you took the big brunt of it. You were, you were asked to step down and uh, you weren't too uh, pleased with that. How how tough was it to uh, have to be asked to step down from a team that you've committed so much of your life to? Oh, obviously it's disappointing. I mean, I I know that it's part of the business and and things happen, but it, it, it was obviously a difficult time. I thought, you know, we had, we had had the program moving in the right direction. We lost one game that would have put us back into an Olympics, and hopefully the Olympic experience from before would have given us the confidence or the experience to be better this time around. So, But like I say in the book, things happen for a reason, and uh, you know, for me personally it turned out to be uh, a negative that quickly turned into a positive because I got asked to help out with the, the U.S. national team. And uh, that kind of helped my career um, in the NBA, and uh, uh, it, it made me move away from Canada a little bit as far as the national team was concerned and uh, get involved with USA basketball and uh, work with Mike Krzyzewski and Jim Beheim and Mike D'Antoni and all these guys. And, uh, you know, that helped me grow as a basketball coach. So, um, you know, things happen for a reason, and it's how you react to them. And I, I wasn't going to let that stop me from my, my dreams or doing what I wanted to do. Now, uh, that's the point where I lost you on the book. When you said you you worked for Team USA, I, I closed it and I was done. Uh, no, I'm just, of course, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, the, they did put you in a bit of a, a, a kind of funny, awkward situation with Team USA. You had to uh, address the team and, and tell them some not-so-positive things. Tell me about what you were asked yeah. to do there. Well, it's, it, when, I, when I first got invited to work with the team uh, – you know, they wanted to. They wanted somebody who knew the international game, and obviously, I had played the international game for a lot of years, and uh, had coached the international game at the Olympics. and And Mike Chesky said, "You know, we want you to come in and bring a, you know, what the rules differences are. You've worked in the NBA, you know the differences in the games, and we need to educate the NBA players." And he was very matter of fact. He said, "We're the best basketball players in the world, but we might not be the best international basketball players uh, at the international game." Uh, so. I was super prepared and went in with my list of things and how the game was different. 
he said, this is fantastic. And he said, what does the rest of the world think about us? And I started going through. I said, you know, well, you know, maybe play a little selfishly and one-on-one and there's a little bit of an arrogance. He goes, you're exactly right. And he put me up in front of the team and made me say that to the, to the team. So I was looking at Jason Kidd and Kobe Bryant and all these guys and LeBron James and going on and on about what the rest of the world thought about them. And, uh, it was like, Oh boy, <laughs> you know, how are you going to do this? But I did it. And, uh, that's what I was asked to do. And, um, you know, ended up staying with that team for, I think it was almost five or six years. So, uh, it was a lot of fun working with the, with, with those, with coaches like that and players like that, obviously. And then winning the world championships was a big thing in, in, in 2010 and being part of that USA uh, being an assistant coach on that team was a, was a big part of my career. Yeah, and as you said, valuable experience, and and then it helped you become a an NBA coach, and you ended up becoming the first Canadian NBA head coach. But you said in the book you didn't always love that connection of being the the Canadian head coach. Well, I I, I didn't like. I always felt like okay, I'm in Toronto, and I'm the Canadian guy in Toronto, and. You know, sometimes you have to branch out, and sometimes you have to move, and sometimes you have to make change in your life. And uh, uh, obviously, I would have loved to stay in Toronto because I was, you know, it's where I was from, and I was living a dream. I mean, I was the first Canadian to coach in the NBA. I was coaching in the city, um, the only Canadian city in the NBA, and I was, uh, it was like, oh, this is this is ideal. But uh, I knew as a coach that eventually I'd have to move, and it wasn't my choice, but. Uh, I didn't want to be known as the Canadian guy because I was Canadian and I wanted to be known as because I was an NBA coach. And I think it took me moving to Portland and then since then moving to Phoenix and Charlotte and establishing, you know, the fact that I, that I can coach on, at different, on different teams uh, and that I'm not just a Canadian coaching in the Canadian city that I, that I am a, you know, an NBA coach. Absolutely. And now, uh, so, so far you, you've been, uh, lead assistant with multiple teams and also the uh, head coach for two rebuilding teams at the time. So the Raptors, of course, and then last year, the Suns. Uh, what kind of challenges does that present for a guy like you who obviously is very uh, – you're motivated to win. You want to win every day. Yeah, I, I like the challenge. I love the challenge. I, I, I think, you know, you're going in as an underdog. I think uh, um, I, I, I relish that. I look forward to it. I, you know, well, what am I going to do? I'm, I've got to be that much more in tune with a strategy or a technique of somehow are we, how are we going to figure out a way to win this game? How are we going to figure out a way to overcome the odds? Because they, both teams were rebuilding. And at the same time, teach uh, competitiveness and teach uh, how to play the right way. So I, I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. So uh, although both experiences weren't like ideal uh, as a coach, uh, I wasn't going to turn my back on challenges. I love challenges, and, and they, they were great challenges that helped uh, not only the players, but you know, they helped me grow as well. You talked about uh, finding unique ways to win. That was the one part where I was looking for a specific chapter on a specific thing, and it didn't come. Uh, I wanted to hear more about what people call now the Triano. Uh, the the nice game winning play you had last year, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was. Tell me a bit about that and where where that came from. It's funny, you know, we we were talking about it even here uh, with with the Charlotte Hornets uh, last week because uh, we were watching a game and something came up and they go, oh, the only play that would work right now is your play, and um, it, it actually started um, during 
uh, was it? we were in Toronto. I was with the Canadian team, and we had big Sim Boulard. And we were running an out-of-bounds play, and we said, just throw it at the rim. And Sim is taller than everybody on the Mexican team. I believe we were playing in the Pan Ams. I said, Sim is taller than everybody on the Pan Am- or on the Mexican team. Just throw it up to the rim. So when we threw it up to the rim, it was going in, and Sim didn't touch it. And I said, why didn't, why didn't you touch it? He goes, well, I thought it was going to hit the rim. And then we started looking around going, but it can't be goaltending if it hits the rim because it's not a shot that would count. So we started – and I said, so then I asked the referee, and they said, no, there's no such thing as goaltending if it's thrown from out of bounds because it's not a basket that would count. So I was like, okay, so now that's a great way. With three-tenths of a second, you can't touch a ball. You can't catch it and redirect it. It has to be a deflection pretty much. So I said, Tim, just go up and just drop it in, just to have it hit your hand and go right through the ring. So, you know, defensive players don't want to go up and touch it. Uh, because they think it's goaltending, and it, offensive players, obviously, everybody thought it was goaltending anyway, so I knew there was a little bit of a loophole in the rule. So we had that situation in, with Phoenix, and I said, just throw the ball in the basket. And I said, Tyson, just go up and you know let it hit your hand and go in. He goes, well, it's goaltending. I said, no, it's not. So we reviewed it uh, in practice uh, probably a week before, and then sure enough, the situation came. We threw a perfect pass, and he dropped it in. And the rest of their, their team, uh, Memphis, was all signaling for – goaltending but i had known the rule and it wasn't goaltending and we ended up getting a win so uh, and, and ironically enough it was my 100th win in the nba so oh, that's it was, awesome it was pretty pretty uh pretty neat timing now i i didn't go i should have gone back and watched the play beforehand but uh did were, were the refs right away like that counts or did you have to uh, well, I, chat I, with I, I ran to the ref i ran to the referees and told them i said you know that counts you know that counts you can't goaltend a ball and they were like okay we got to go review it they went and reviewed it, and then, so I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they knew as they knew already as well. But uh, it's just something a lot of people don't know, and it's something that you know against the grain, really. Yeah, and I think that is really uh, as people who will read your book will see, just shows the amount of um, work you put into this and the work you put into your craft and knowing the game. And it, it was a it was a really fun moment, I know for me too. Uh, but uh, you end the book with a phone call from Steve Nash. Uh, tell me a bit about that phone call. Oh, I think we've had, we've had a lot of phone calls. <laughs> probably, the, you know, I think you know to come back and coach the Canadian team was, was a big thing, and uh, I wasn't going to do it. Um, you know, I, it, it was time to give somebody else else a chance to coach our national team. Uh, but when Steve said, I, you know, I want to take this job and I want you to come back and coach, I couldn't say no to him after what he had meant to me as a player. And uh, if I was going to be on the team with him again, uh, trying to trying to bring um, prominence to our our basketball nation again, then I wanted it to be with a guy like him. So it was something I just couldn't say no to and came back to coach our national team. And that's why I'm still there now. And uh, to come a bit full circle here, one of the things uh, Jack Donahue, you said in the book, would uh, get you to do was write down your goals and your dreams, write them down, and then uh, uh, that would help them become a reality. What are the goals you've got written down now? I want to be the best coach I can possibly be. Um, uh, every day, what can I do? What can I do to challenge my players on a daily basis? Um Obviously, those are my work goals. I have personal goals as well. Um, but, you know, for for the most part, you know, Jack always said, you know, <laughs> if you have a dream, it's great. 
and there's, you know, he would say there's a certain percentage chance that it would come true. If you write it down, that percentage chance doubles. And if you put it where you can see it on a daily basis, it goes up even higher. And, uh, you know, I started doing that. I started writing down these things, and I'll put little notes where I can see them, uh, whether it's motivation, whether it's a reminder, whether it's, um, you know, just what I expect to happen next in my life. And I've been very lucky, and, you know, as the book shows, I mean, to have a relationship with uh, a Terry Fox and a Steve Nash and a Jack Donahue, um, three Canadians that I admire and respect and gave a lot to this country, I um, I feel very fortunate. And I think a lot of it has to do with what they taught me and, and, and how I've uh, been able to have goals and then reestablish them and have dreams and, and, and change them and chase them. And uh, I think that's what, you know, has allowed me to you know, be as successful as I have uh, being involved in a career that I absolutely love. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things you've mentioned throughout this interview is that you want to see more Canadians reach that goal that you got to reach of, of being at the Olympics. And now uh, this summer, you guys had a terrific summer uh, as part of the FIBA qualifiers. You went, I believe it was 5-1 and one in, the, uh, in the second round of qualifiers. What's it going to take to... Uh, bring this team back to the Olympics? Well, I think it's going to a commitment of our players to wanting to play after a tough NBA season. And I know it's, it's not easy. Um, you know, the NBA is a challenging business. It's, it's their profession. We ask them over and over to give up time and sacrifice their bodies and, and, and play and, and, and try to represent. But I also know that at the end of their careers in the NBA, if they don't play in an Olympics or they don't get a chance to represent their country, that will be a regret that they have. Uh, they'll play in a thousand NBA games. They might play in eight or six or maybe even only one Olympics, one Olympic game. And uh, I think that that is uh, that's something that they they will all regret. And I want to try to emphasize to them the importance of that. And I think at the time you get caught up in where you are, but in the course of history, they'll 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 respect and, and appreciate. Like the guys in the in the 2000 Olympics do, uh, it's their it's their one of their greatest moments. The, is the sharing of uh, competing for their country uh, at the highest level possible. Well, Coach, uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on today, and uh, I know that y you probably wouldn't say this, but I, I think I can. I'm sure many of the Canadian players and and. Uh, that you've coached and it will be a part of their lives. We'll, we'll also uh, look back at you like uh, like you may have looked back at, at Coach Jack, and uh, you've you've certainly done a lot for the program, and you're still doing lots for it. So uh, I appreciate you writing a book so we can all learn a little bit more about you, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your story. Awesome. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, and good luck in your uh, next game with Charlotte. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Jay Triano, coach of the national team and author of the book, Open Look. If you're a Canadian basketball fan, it is a must-read. And to help encourage you to read the book, I'm doing a book giveaway. Anyone who shares or retweets the original posts I'll make on Twitter and Facebook will be entered to win the draw for the book. So go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, give it a share. As always, if you liked what you heard on the podcast, please leave a rating and a review. It means a lot. That's all for this episode of Canada's Court. Thanks for listening.